Father, we are thankful for your word. Anywhere we open it, everything we read tells us about you, tells us about your son and the work of your spirit, tells us about how you alone are worthy of the glory, the honor and the recognition and the thanksgiving. And it's hard for us sometimes to let go. We want the attention on us. We want you to solve our problems. We tend to be selfish and not care about somebody else's that may be going through the same thing. And so as we look at Habakkuk and we look at this transformation in his life in three chapters, may that same one go on in ours. That when we feel pain or we're suffering or um, struggling with finances, whatever it may be, that our first response would be to thank you turn to you for help and to pray for others that are in the same position to get the focus off ourselves and onto you you alone can take care of us we know from the um, teaching of your word that judah will be preserved it'll only be a remnant but you will follow through on your promises so remind us of that in our lives as we go through these two verses this morning that you would um, teach us to trust you like your son did when he took on human flesh We just thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Two little verses. I was trying to decide if I should tell you to bring your lunches. (laughs) See, the shorter the passage, the longer I go. Oh, yes. It gives me time to study lots of peripheries and rabbit trails, and so um, we'll see if we can keep it within a reasonable distance here. My arm went to sleep holding the child, but I'd rather hold the child I didn't know she was falling asleep. Um, just how comforting and comfortable I am. <laughs> Write that down on my tombstone. As we're looking at Habakkuk, we finally entered into chapter 3. We've looked at his complaint that God wasn't judging his own people. God says, I'm going to take care of that for you and use the Chaldeans. And so then he says, well, wait a minute. Now I have to complain about the use of the Chaldeans. Back in chapter 1, verse 12, into verse two, uh, 1 of chapter 2. And God answers him again and basically tells him, that's my business. They are going to get it. They're going to get it big. Five woes are pronounced against them. But that's not the point, and that's not your focus, Habakkuk. So you need, as we're seeing in this passage, to show full compliance to my will, regardless of how I carry it out. God will keep his promises. And so as you look at this, you're realizing in this series that we're preparing for God's people for discipline in the United States of America. Because the sin of America is not getting better. It's getting worse. And God is turning his attention on his own people, and he will use this country to help the church to grow up. Question is, how are we going to respond? Well, I'll tell you how. We're going to complain. Then God's going to give us an answer. Then we're going to complain even worse. Then God's going to give us another answer. And then we're finally going to comply. That's how it's going to work. That, that's the struggle we too often go through, isn't it? That's the reality. Problems come in and we're all wrapped up in ourselves. Habakkuk changes here from his focus on himself to his focus on Yahweh, which is what our focus should always be. And he goes into prayer to prove that focus. This, is, uh, this little couple of verses here are praise for God's person. This is what he's going to focus on in these two verses. 3 to 15 is praise for God's power that he's going to use in the right way. And then at the end, 3, 16 to 19, that Bev and I have to memorize by then, again, 
and say to each other, as we did once upon a time, is for God's provision. No matter what is lacking, the cattle, the produce, whatever it may be, the olive tree, God is going to provide. And we can trust him. So the question this morning as you go into this passage is, what's your trust level? Are you a 10, 6, 2? How are you doing? 12. Whoa. Good job. But it should be what we are. We shouldn't have a problem. God is not questioned or questionable. We sing songs all about him, about what he's doing in our lives. And yet when he, when he puts us in a trial, we're just like Habakkuk. You see how I'm stretching out my introduction because I only have two verses? Okay, let's, let's get to the good stuff here. Verse 1, Habakkuk moves into this issue and he makes it very clear. He said, it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Say that three times really fast. But clear your mouth of anything else before you try to say it. This prayer here is the most general, common Hebrew word for prayer. Just talking to God. But in this sense of how he's applying it here, according to Shigianoth, it is a liturgical, which just is an idea of focus on public worship. It's a poetical prayer because that's how the passage is written. And Vines brings that out in Vines Expository Dictionary. That's the context. That means that this prayer is being set to music and sung in a formal worship service. Where do you see that elsewhere? I mean in Scripture. In the Psalms. And the only other place that the Shigenoff shows up is in Psalm 7. They're not sure what the term means. They make guesses about it. They try to bring this out. But this is what he's wrapping it all up in. It is a style of poetry, but it's musical and it's for the purpose of formal worship. You go over to chapter 3, verse 19, right at the very end of the letter. And he tells us specifically, for the choir director on my stringed instrument. That's what he's writing in chapter 3. This is what's going to be sung at church. As you sang some songs this morning, this is what's going to stand out. We are moving into a poem, and so the outline there can shift over to that, that aspect of chapter uh, 3, verse 1. But Habakkuk here, we only have his name mentioned twice in this book, once in chapter 1 at the beginning and now in chapter 3. And he's bringing this up again because it's a focus of Habakkuk who's praying. Habakkuk, the one that's kind of upset not kind of, very upset with what God's doing. But he's a prophet. He's a righteous man. God is choosing to work through him. He's obedient. We see where he comes to, but he's human, and that stands out. He points out here that Habakkuk, which means to embrace, remember that? Back in chapter 1, it, it's the idea of this righteous chosen instrument of God is being used a second time in the book according, and then pointed out the fact that he is a prophet. He is a spokesman for God. He is a speaker to Judah carrying out God's message. And remember what prophets did. We always think about them um, foretelling, the idea of predicting what's future. But their bigger role, actually, when you read a lot of it, is foretelling. They're simply passing on facts, not just future from God. And so as he's interacting with this struggle here, the idea that this prayer comes in is what is the question we'd ask ourselves, when do you pray? When is it time to pray? Okay, always is the biblical answer, but when do you actually pray? When you're in trouble. Foxhole works really good for prayer, right? And when? To be, when you're thankful, you'll acknowledge someone God did something really, really good. 
You, you go out of your way to say thank you, thank you, thank you as you do that little dance. Why don't we dance all the time? Aren't we thankful all the time? But, but prayer acknowledges God's what? His presence, his goodness, his sovereignty. Why is Habakkuk bringing this up at this point in time? God is in control, which brings up the sovereignty idea. God is going to take care of this his way. The prophet is trying to be God. Remember how he struggled in there? He's, he's forgetting his role. He's, he's saying, well, I'm not just a prophet. I get to instruct him. I get to tell Yahweh what to do because this is not a good idea. You ever do that? Come on, admit it. You ever want to do that? Yeah. Sometimes we hold back. But here's Habakkuk, just a man, just a normal man. He may have been extra intelligent by the way he wrote and how this um, three little chapters come together for us, but he's a man, and he was chosen by God to be his spokesman. So the priority here of Habakkuk's life is on Judah, God's people, and Habakkuk did that well. Even though he struggled with the message, you, you never do that when you're reading the Bible, right? You come across something, you go, wait a minute. That, that can't be what he means. That, that's assuming you're reading your Bibles, correct? Yeah. And now that COVID's over and everybody's feeling a lot better, you're reading your Bible a lot more. You've realized what you lost out. You've got to catch up. You guys are too quiet this morning. God is in control. This is all Habakkuk is learning along with us. And so he points out this, goes from the song that he's, he's putting together here, the uh, seer, the prophet, to the style he uses, he says, is according to Shigianoth. According to is just the Hebrew saying, in the style of or set to. And he's bringing out this idea, and they're not exactly sure what this represents. They're pretty sure, based on the end of the book, that it's stringed instruments. But many people want to describe Shigianoth as a lively temple. This isn't a funeral dirge. He didn't say go to church and say, oh, judgment is coming. Oh, judgment is coming. Oh, judgment is coming. Get ready. It's not like that. This song is actually an exciting, lively temple. It's emotional. It's enthusiastic. It's irregular is what they, they try to pick up from this. It majestically worships God. It puts all the focus on him, which is why the song can be lively, energetic, worshipful. It's not on the world. Are you, are you watching the world? How many of you stopped watching the news here in recent days? All right, a whole bunch of you. So we're kind of losing track of what's out there, which can be okay, at least for your blood pressure. But when the realities get closer and you can't hide from it anymore, and it's lapine where it's happening, which it's starting to, as I've been told, some things are coming into our school even, because it's controlled by the state. And some things are being brought in, so you're going to find more and more children being indoctrinated into the ways of the world. Not that they weren't already, but a lot of teachers had a lot more freedom to ignore some things and to insert some things that they had the constitutional freedom to do, but they're narrowing it down and narrowing it down. And so the younger generation, many of you homeschool, are going to be influenced with falsehoods, with deception. They're being told what to think and what to believe. They're not being encouraged to learn for themselves and to check it out. 
as you do the preacher every week, right? Shigianoth. Lively, energetic, emotional, worshipful. This is what he's trying to focus on. And so as he brings it up in Psalm 7, the only other place it's mentioned, it carries the same idea. Focusing on the idea of a psalm with music expressive of strong emotion. And you could say this a number of ways and try to bring it up a number of ways, but it comes back to the issue, why pray at all? You ever prayed for something for a long time and it never happened? Then what happens? You kind of slow down. It goes from daily to weekly to monthly, especially if it's someone that hasn't come to Christ yet, and they're just getting harder and harder. And that should be your sign that you need to pray more and more. You want some kind of response. You want something to tell you that they're, they're under conviction. And the best conviction you're going to spot in another individual who isn't saved is hatred toward you for sharing things of the Lord, spiritual things, biblical things, and worse yet, for living it out before them. It's convicting. So when they react and respond to you, it's not for us to react back to them. It's for us to realize, okay, God's at work. He's trying to get their attention. So we pray, and this is what Habakkuk's doing. He's resisted, he's complained, he's pointed out that God surely doesn't want to do this, and he's finally here in chapter 3 accepting it. Now, I don't know how to teach this and how to bring it out. I've told you for decades that persecution is coming to the true believers in America. And I would tell you now it's as close as it's ever been. And there's two things we need to do to get ready for that. What are they? Okay, you can be praying. That'd be a, a spiritual thing to do. And what else can you be doing? Get into the word for yourself. Get to know it. Memorize scripture. And then you can be sharing the gospel. So we'll make three things at this point. Go out of your way to tell people. And you don't have to push it on them. You simply have to share with them what God's doing in your life. What do they share with you at work? Yeah. If on Monday morning when you get to work, what do they talk about? What they did over the weekend, what fish they caught, what garage sale they went to, and the, and the find of the lifetime that I picked up. Couldn't believe. They were selling it for only $10, and I got them down to 5 It was worth 500 Well, then why'd you get them down? Because I'm selfish and greedy. No, we won't go into all that. But, but the, that's why I don't go to garage sales. I don't have to worry about it. Do I? I may be in one or two in the car. But anyway, he's, he's wrestling with this as Habakkuk watches, and he's finally, he's submitting, and then he's trying to teach Judah to submit. And so he's going to bring this into the worship service. How long are they going to sing this song? How long was the captivivity? 70 years. How do you know that? Jeremiah 25, when you look at that, you look at some of these prophets and you think, oh, they're all, you know, they're all other times. Now, Jeremiah is a contemporary. Jeremiah was probably fled off to Egypt and some think that he ran off or they brought him back and actually got him into Babylon at some point. We don't know for sure. But other prophets, Isaiah was leading up to this and was letting them know and really came out strongly on Judah. And now I lost my place. I think it's in verse, okay, starting in verse 12 of Jer, uh, there, uh, 
Yeah, we could mention that one. I'm going to cover some more, but I want to point out something really specific here. So let's lead up to it. Let's start with verse 1. Jeremiah 25, important passage. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's bad. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. They weren't waiting for Habakkuk. Jeremiah had already been harping on this for how long? Twenty-three years. How long have I been preaching about judgment coming? 23 years, probably, somewhere around there. But he says in verse 4 that the Lord has sent to you, uh, you, to all, you all, that's kind of a southern phrase, his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to do to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, now, I didn't want to hear that. And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon... 70 years, written before it ever happened. What has God said to us today? What's he told believers about sin? Okay, the, the soul that sins it shall die, wages of sin is death. But what's he told the individual believers? Can you think of any verses in the New Testament that warn you, that turn you away when you're tempted to, you can list your favorite, well, list your neighbor's favorite sin. Gossip, lie, what was it? You're naming your neighbor or you're, oh, okay, good. No, we don't want to do it. Uh, slander, is that what, okay. Sorry. What other sins? What are, where are they that are going on? And we kind of go, oh, that's not a big sin. Coveting, coveting garage sales, coveting. No, and what? And Gluttony. Oh, you're not allowed to bring that up either. We can name a lot of them that we think are okay. What does God say about them? He loves lying. It's his favorite, right? Except in Proverbs when he says that lying lips are an abomination to him. How many times do you have to lie to have lying lips? Once. So as he's processing this, we kind of did doing today what Judah did then. Oh, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. Yeah, well, I'm not going to kill somebody. I won't murder. But kind of water down the rest of them. 
Really? What, what does it bring? It brings, for the believer, discipline. Hebrews 12, God spanks us and gets our attention, doesn't he? This is what Habakkuk's learning here. God says, because I'm just, I have to spank Judah. And because I love Judah, you're going to see some other things that are going to come out of this. I will not wipe her out. I will take care of her. But I cannot ignore what she is doing here. And so as he wrestles with this whole issue, he starts off in verse 1 with a prayer. Habakkuk's prayer. He's a prophet. And it's according to Shigianah. And so he's laying that out very clearly. And then he moves from this poem, which is how all this is written in poetry, to the specific petition, or a couple of them. In verse 2, he's finally appears to be surrendering and submitting to Yahweh. And so verse 2, he says, Lord, Yahweh, I have heard the report about thee, I fear. I don't like the way they translated this. I like the um, New Living, but I didn't bring it up here. It was a, a little more simple, and, and it flows better. They're kind of being rigid with how they're bringing this out. But he's simply addressing Yahweh, who was the covenant-keeping God. Remember that? Elohim seems to focus more on the creator, the strong one, the one who's made everything. Yahweh goes back to I am that I am, and he doesn't disappear. He's eternal. He, he will always be there. He will always keep his promises. He cannot lie. So it's locked in. So he uses that name here, and he says, I have heard the report about thee, bringing out a specific thing. I have perceived by ear. I've understood and discerned the report about thee. And what is he talking about there? What is he going to go into if you read ahead into 3 to 15? What's the report? What gets brought up in, in the verses that come later? What report would matter to Habakkuk at this point? God took care of Israel as they came to the wilderness. As you look up in here, just to point out one of them, going back to Habakkuk for me, he says right there in verse 3, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's talking about the exodus out of Egypt. And he, he'll flow through that. And you'll watch what he's going to do. What did God do for them in the exodus? What did he do before they even left? Plagues that came on Egypt and not on the Israelites as long as they obeyed, as long as they did what they were told, as long as they put the blood up or whatever was required of them. But some of them had nothing to do with them. It would come down on the Egyptians and not on the Israelites. And they were amazing. The magicians copied some of it. They thought, oh, we can do that, and we can do that. And then they realized, we can't do that, and we can't do that. And they kind of fade out of the picture. Because God did greater and greater things to teach Israel who he was and prepare Israel to flee. And as they went out, what did God do? As he traveled, he, at night he was the fire, and by daytime... He was a cloud. When they reached the um, Red Sea and they're ready to cross and they're complaining because Moses let them out and the Egyptian armies are pursuing on them, what did God do? Ultimately, he rescued them. But prior to that, all night while they're crossing the Red Sea, he puts up that fire and he keeps the um, attacking armies from getting to them. How much did they know that was going on? You ever notice that? In our lives, so many things happened to us, and I've shared some of them before. I had a car that was really, really dependable, and one day I punched it, jumped out in traffic, and it went, 
This died. And then this car came by that I didn't see at a very high rate of speed. And God said, mm, not today. My car didn't do that. It didn't die when you gave it gas. I didn't have a hot rod or anything, but it, was, it worked just fine. And you see God doing that regularly, or you are fleeing to the Red Sea, and you don't have any idea what's going on back there with the Egyptian army. And that's typically probably 99.9%. Kind of like COVID survivors. Shouldn't compare it that way, but God takes care of us. And we have no idea what he's doing most of the time. And this is the report. He says, I heard about you, your accomplishments, your fame, your feats. Literally, your news is the idea of this report. And he's going to put that to music. Because that's what he wants the Israelites to sing for the next 70 years and beyond. As they keep looking back on what God has done for them. What do you look back on? Nobody's sleeping today. That's a lot better. At least if they are, they're hiding from me. Or they should be sleeping. Like two-year-olds and whatever. What does God do for you? What's that? He loves us and us. Okay, protects us all the time. What does Satan want to do? What do you see in Scripture when you realize Satan's work constantly with Job with Peter, you, you can go in there and find all kinds of examples with Adam and Eve. He's always attacking. He can only be in one place at a time. The devil made me do it. It's not realistic. He usually goes after the top targets, the ones he really wants to take down. But demons are at work with very people's, various people's lives. And so God is constantly restricting them, um, sometimes giving them permission, but within the bounds, like Job 1 and 2, of what you're, uh, Satan or the demons are allowed to do to you. They're not behind every bush. They're not in control. They, they can't just, um, they, they can deceive you. I've heard a lot of stories, believe me. I've been a pastor for 40-something years, and I knew a lot of pastors before that that told me stories, and many of them I don't pass on. Because I don't know how true some of them were. But they're constantly trying to deceive. When they can't get to you, they want you to think they can get to you. They, they want you to think that they've done something to somebody or they're going to harm you, and so you, you start living in fear. That's just one realm. The world is doing the same thing. It's coming after us. It hates holiness. It hates God. It hates righteous living in any way, shape, or form. So when I choose to walk in, walk by the Spirit, to walk in holiness, I'm choosing to go to battle. When I choose to pray and take some moments to pray, I'm choosing to go to battle. You can expect distractions at that point in time. That's why when God wakes you up in the middle of the night and there's nothing going on, great time to pray. Not to complain, oh, I'm awake again. Maybe God just wants you to pray for a few minutes and he'll let you go back to sleep. But when you resist him and you choose not to pray, it may be two hours later, oh, I'm awake again. We find complaining is much easier, and I'm an expert at complaining, believe me. But we find it much easier than to simply do what God wants us to do. Walk by the Spirit. Simply follow him and let him do all the heavy lifting. We want to be recognized. 
Habakkuk was trying to do it himself. I think a lot of what happened in the first chapter two is Habakkuk walking by the flesh. And now he's finally turning around. He's putting his focus back on God. He's surrendering. He's submitting to the Yahweh's will. And he comes in here and he goes back to the events of the past. Why does he say, I've heard? Why does he have to perceive by the ear? Who reported to him? Yes, I'm asking you to respond. Okay, God spoke directly to him, but this is a report about him, about you. So somebody else has given him the report, the news, the facts, the information. Who would have done that? Obviously, the other prophets that were contemporaries of the day. Isaiah would have been a little early, but Jeremiah was in there. Uh, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, uh, I'm leaving out Daniel. He was part of, of that period in there, carried off into captivity. He would have read on some of that. That's how he knew how long things were going to go here when he talks about in the midst of years. This wasn't going to be a simple little process. What do you think God's going to do in America when, he, when he's trying to get the church's attention? Is it going to be like a Monday and it's over? A bad Monday? Okay, we'll give him a week to accomplish it. How long will God take? He'll go until the work is, is all done. And the true believers have genuinely submitted to him and are relaxing in him, crying out to him. They are rejoicing like we find in the book of Hebrews that we're studying on Wednesday nights. When everything is, the property seized away, their loved ones are being executed, all that's going on there, God, I'm all yours. I'll stay and do your work or you can take me home by firing squad, by hanging, whatever the method may be. What are we afraid of? Man, what was Habakkuk finally being afraid of? God. That's the key. God will not give you more than you can handle. Where is that found? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and I'm just taking a chunk out of there. But he watches over us, and we think, oh, he's not watching over this. This can't be... He this can't be allowing this to happen to me. Where's God? He's always watching over. He doesn't sleep. He's not, he's not powerless. He is working on us to conform us to the image of his son. And so here's Habakkuk learning from the past what he's read about, the power of God. It could be creation. It could be the flood. But especially the exodus, I think, because of what he leads into and entering into Canaan and all that he points out there. That's what he was learning about God. If God could take care of them that way, he can take care of me. What stops God from parting the Deschutes, little Deschutes River? Nothing. But if you don't need to walk across, guess what? He didn't need to part it. See, we're always walking around saying, God, give me something. Give me something. Give me, prove, prove yourself to me. God didn't have to prove anything. He'll, he'll be what he needs to be at the time he needs to be it. But when we walk around with him, son, and kind of going, oh, I'm rubbing on the bottle and the, the genie's not coming out. Or I got my little rabbit's foot. Nothing's happening. God is not that kind of a God. He's not subject to us. But as he goes in here, Habakkuk clearly reveals, I fear. I am alarmed. I am afraid, or I stand in awe 
reverential awe of God. The, the new living says, I am filled with awe because of what God has done. God is omnipotent. What can he not do for me? Nothing. So when he doesn't do it, what is he saying? You don't need that. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't need that, Habakkuk. Yes, I do. You don't need that. And so you finally come to chapter 3 and you finally go, okay, I don't need that. I'm not afraid of man. I'm not afraid of what's going on around me. I'm not afraid of what you're going to allow to happen with the Chaldeans. And it won't just be Judah. They were going to take over the known world and all of the bad things that we talked about that they would do. But what did God do with Daniel? Preserved him. He may become a eunuch. More than likely to be in the position he was in, he was a eunuch. You never hear about him getting married. You never hear about his children. And he lived to be in his 80s because of how long he existed. Timeline. Was that something he complained to God about? You can. What can you do about it? Nothing. What did Daniel do with his life? He worshiped God and he served faithfully all the way through different kingdoms, taken over by one, the Medes and Persians come in, and he goes, oh no, I had, I had my position in my place and I was respected and now I got to start over again. Kind of like a rookie. Is that, was that what happened to Daniel? No. He went right back into a high position. They knew who he was. They got testimony from people. He's the only one that could tell the future because his God spoke to him. Okay, we'll keep him around. And he kept serving. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is the only way I've ever learned their names. If I try to say the other ones, Mishael and the other guys, Azariah, I'll confuse them and won't put them in the right order. But God did the same thing with them. And yet, as you look at their lives, you're going, okay, they had it made. Just like being thrown in the lion's den. Volunteers? You know why they threw them in the lion's den? To feed the lions. It's very expensive to have a lion. How many of you have ever had a lion? They didn't throw them in there after they'd fed them. They threw them in there beforehand. The reason we know that is when Daniel gets let out the next day and the, the guys that got him thrown in there, the king can finally deal with them, and he throws them in there. They hadn't even hit the ground yet before the lions were on them. Crunching their bones and their wives and their children. King didn't mess around. Daniel was fine. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is their Babylonian names. They get put into the fiery furnace. And how do they do? Not only do they come out without even smelling like smoke, there's a fourth person walking around with them, and the king gets to see with his own eyes. Who was that? Pre-incarnate Christ? You go, that's what I want. Well, if you need that, because God wants you to live through whatever they're doing to you and bring you out on the other side and testify for him, then it's done. Where Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego sitting there praying, God, please send your, your son to walk with us in the fire and help us not to burn up. I didn't see that anywhere in the book of Daniel. They expected to die, but they weren't caving in to the demands of society, which is what we have to get used to. It's where Habakkuk is bringing himself here as God's prophet. He's finally recognizing no matter what happens around me, I can trust God. And that's what he's bringing out. But he points out here, I have this reverential fear. I'm not taking this lightly. 
I know who God is. I know his accomplishments. I go back and realize what he does to people who disobey him when the ground opens up and swallows up 250 Israelites. Maybe a little burp comes out of there, but that's it. God is in control. This is what Habakkuk is trying to tell him. This is how he's preparing the nation of Judah. God prepared Habakkuk, and now he's going to prepare the nation. Because when they go through 70 years of captivity, they went through a lot of bad stuff. And only a remnant was carried off. Most of them were slaughtered right there in the land. And so this first act, reaction on his part is he hears the facts and he, he has a reverential fear for God. And so he makes the request. Here's the request number one. He says in, in uh, second half of verse two, O Lord, goes back to the name Yahweh and he says, revive thy work. That's the only command. And the only reason it's in a command form isn't him bossing God around. It's, it's to put it in a strong language where a strong appeal to God to do what he needs to do here. And he says, revive thy work. What work is he talking about? What was in the context? I have heard the report about thee. What report? What God had done for Israel in the past. How he led his people out and probably a focus on that idea. But he's pointing out here to revive thy work. It literally carries the idea to preserve life. Let your people live. I kind of wrote in my notes here. Um, it's a PL. It's an intensive form in the, in the Hebrew. And he's, I wrote in there, he said, do it again, God. Take Judah into captivity, but do it again. Take her in captivity just like you took Israel out of Egypt. Protect her, bring her along, make her successful. And he does that. The answer is just with uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is an answer to that prayer. To revive it. To, to let the people be preserved here. And so he again reminds them, revive thy work in the midst of the years. What years? The 70 years of captivity and maybe beyond, depending on what happened. Many of them never came back. They didn't return to the land after they were free to. And you have to go into Ezra and Nehemiah and you find out more of what was going on when they returned to build the, the walls and build the temple. And, and he's talking about here in the middle of the period of time. He doesn't say um, in the middle of the days or the middle of the hours or the middle of the decade. He leaves it wide open. But he's take, telling him basically with this revive thy work is take care of Judah with all of your power that I recognize you performed with the Israelites getting out of Egypt. This is what he's calling out to. He's going back to the example of who God is, this might of God. And then he says, along with that, to in the midst of the years, repeats it again during this whole time frame, make it known. This is not an um, imperative or a command, but it is a hifil. And he's trying to, he says, cause it to be declared, teach it to your people. Within this reasonable period that you're going to bring in, whatever it may be, this time of discipline, while we're in captivity, now you cause it to be declared, who did God use to declare the message? His prophets like Daniel. Jeremiah came into that time period for a little while. Zephaniah probably was before. They, they break them down into pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic prophets. And they build it all around that 70-year captivity. If they wrote like Daniel during the captivity, he's an exilic prophet. 
If they wrote like Isaiah before this captivity, he's pre-exilic. If they wrote after like um, Obadiah would be one. There's a few of them. And again, I don't have the, the dates that lined up that I want to state it that clearly. But as he, as he interacted, these are the individuals who declared it, caused it to be known, taught it to God's people. You go read the book of Daniel with this idea in your brain, and the book of Daniel splits in half. Everybody remembers the second half for prophecy, but the first half is all about six chapters of what? History of what happened to the Israelites. What happened to Daniel in the lion's den? What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and, the, and what happened to the king? How God even brought the, the king of the nation to himself. See, we want to say they're never going to come to Christ. Then I ask you to test your theory. Share the gospel with them. And the first thing you're going to get, because I've gotten it before and I've seen other people get it, if they have any flaws, if they've seen anything in your life that they can pick on, that's when you find out about it. As soon as you start telling them the righteous way to live, they go, what about this? What about this? I saw you. And so how do you respond to things that they recognize were your sins? You confess, you admit, you humble yourself. You own up to it. You're right. I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. I've told a few people that. But Jesus Christ has paid my debt. He's made it possible for me to have eternal life. And he gave it to me as a free gift. I can't earn it. It isn't a 5 to 95 percentage. It isn't 50-50. It isn't anything like that. I can't do anything about it. And so God has to do it. And so these prophets are going to come in and they're going to make a difference in Judah. And you read the first six chapters from that line and you see them. Chapter 1 of Daniel is what? what? What's he pointing out there? These youths being carried off into captivity. Their resistance to, do, to living the way of the Babylonians, which was crude, rude, and unbiblical. Their appeal to the person over them who said, if this fails, it's my neck. And it's amazing that the guy went along with them because what it's saying to you, to you is God worked in that man to take a risk with those boys. And when he gave them the time frame and they came out healthier, uh, better looking, everything about them, all of a sudden the guy goes, man, this is great. And so now people take it and that's the diet you're supposed to live by. That was a Jewish diet based on Jewish law. It had nothing to do with your health. It had everything to do with God's holiness and his chosen people being set apart. But when the sheet comes down, remember in the book of Acts? Arise, Peter, kill and eat. What was in it? Non-Israelite things. Peter responds three times. I'm not eating that stuff. That's kind of the modern translation. You got pigs in there. You think I'm going to get up and kill the pig and eat it? I've never even tasted pig. And I'm not allowed to eat it. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. God had brought some changes with the beginning of the church. And so he's wrestling here. I've heard the report about you. I fear. Well, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Even in all this trials and pressures and problems that are going to come on us, revive your work. And again, a reminder, in the midst of the years, make it known, declare it, help your people. Habakkuk is finally caring about Judah, where in chapter 1, he wanted Judah nailed. They're bad, God, go get them. Now all of a sudden, he seems to care. 
And he comes down to this last section here. And I've got a lot of filler if I need it. So don't, don't think we're going to get over with. <laughs> I have to determine how much of this I want to cover. But the last thing he says with the recall is he, he appeals to God in wrath, remember mercy. And we think of wrath in a variety of ways, but as you look at this Hebrew word, it's agitation and rage is the main idea that comes out of it. Terror, T-E-R-R-O-R, can come in there, but it describes a time of turmoil, of disquiet, of shaking and trembling. The root idea behind this wrath is a quaking, trembling. It's used in Habakkuk 3. Look at verse 7. It's going to show up two times after this. In verse 7, he says, I saw the tents of Cushion. Under distress, the tent tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. They were under wrath. That's the same word he's using here. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Had Habakkuk learned anything? He was submitting, wasn't he? He was finally coming down to the realization that God knows what he's doing. This is what's best for us. God doesn't just turn them loose to do whatever they want any more than he turns the devil loose to do whatever he wants. They will specifically come in. Who gets more protection than others? The righteous, as far as how it's described. Those who are truly trusting in, relying upon Yahweh, God protects, and you see some of them come through it very well, but they don't come through it unscathed. If Daniel became a eunuch, if Daniel is now a servant and has to be around all that stuff, he prays and he gets in trouble. Why did he go in the lion's den? For prayer. He didn't stop. They said, you can't pray to that God anymore. And that was the evil people around him, the other leaders that were jealous of him. And so they, they set him up. They look for something in his life that he's going to do, and yep, it's going to get you in trouble. So when they tell you you can't read your Bible anymore and they catch you doing it, you react by what? Rejoicing. Oh, they took your Bible away and they carried you off to jail. Then you start looking for, in jail like they did in Vietnam, I heard a lot of testimonies from people my age that were there. They start sharing the scriptures from jail cell to jail cell. Verses they could remember, they started writing them down. They didn't have paper very plentiful, but what they got, they wrote down. And pretty soon you'd have a page of scripture that was getting passed from people to people. We're spoiled. How many translations do we have? How many opportunities do we have to study and to encourage or to be the one teaching? Oh, I can't teach. I tried to say that to God. Moses tried to say that to God. Don't tell God what he... you can't do if he works through you. The, the issue is, do you know something that somebody else doesn't know? If you know more than another believer, you can teach them. Instead, we not only don't go to those that are teaching, well, we don't teach, and then we don't go to those that are teaching, like Bible studies. And what I've told you many times is you come to a study, the thing you should be doing with that is turning right around, and you teach that. You come to a Wednesday night Bible study, set up a Friday afternoon or a Friday night Study of your own, sorry, I shouldn't compete. Thursday night, Saturday morning, whatever time is, is not going to compete with something else. Go grab onto a couple people and say, hey, let's study. You know who benefits the most from that? You do. I learn far more than you ever will, week to week, by, te- by studying and, and preaching. 
And people come to me and say, well, you know so much. I go, well, I'll tell you how to know. Get in a position of responsibility, and all of a sudden you start scrambling. When we first came here, the our car broke down. We had a um, exhaust system that shut off. It just, the catalytic converter, and we were stuck in Portland for the night. And when I got in here, they put me right into the pulpit to preach, and then they had me do communion that day. Well, I hadn't even done communion much down in, in Texas where we were. It just wasn't my thing. The pastor did it all the time. And I'm going, uh-oh, now I'm on display. What are they looking for? And it was impromptu. Not only I wasn't, well, I wasn't used to it, I don't have some formula that I use. As you notice, I purposely don't have a formula. I try to give you a different passage of Scripture or not repeat one for a long time so that you don't get into some kind of rut or routine in order to interact with the Lord when it comes to communion. But I remember standing up there that day, and I shared, and they're all amazed and awed. <laughs> At least it, they hired me. Okay, maybe I'm blowing it up a little bit there. But. I, tried, I kept getting them off the ground. They were worshiping, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but you're sitting there going, God, all I, all I did was cry out. I remember that and many other times of, Lord, okay, Lord, here we go. Pick a passage, take them through taking the bread and the wine. You know how you remember the order? You eat the bread and then you wash it down with the, with the cup. You'd be surprised how many pastors mix that up. Does it matter? No. Because there's four cups in the meal, and they're eating in between each of the cups. It's like we get so hung up on stuff, it's ridiculous. Now, they went too far with the youth pastor I knew that, that um, got McDonald's hamburgers and Cokes to celebrate communion. I, I, that went beyond me, but kind of missed something in there in the translation. Leaven bread and Coke. But anyway, as, as you're interacting with this, here's Habakkuk learning like the rest of us learn. And he brings up this phrase here, in wrath, remember mercy. In this time of agitation and rage that God's coming down, he's not judging Judah as far as the righteous are concerned. He's spanking them. But the unrighteous, dead. They're taken out. Who are you? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's a start. And then you prove it by not just your faith, but your faithfulness, as we talked about last week. It's a lifestyle. It's what I do. It's when you poke me, out comes blood. When you poke a believer spiritually, out comes Christ. That's what should show. And when he doesn't come out, which is not always the case in our lives, then we turn around and we go back and we, like my wife and I, we had a little interaction here um, a couple days ago. And then we came back to each other. We both came back at the same time and just started laughing because of how we reacted. And I had used a word I shouldn't use, uh, not a swear word, but a, a, a description that I shouldn't have used. And I told her, I don't know why, where that came from, why I even said it, but I wasn't going to back down in the middle of battle. And so we were just laughing. And it, didn't, it wasn't very long. That's, that's the advantage of getting old and decrepit. And, and you know your time's short, so you can't keep long accounts. But yes, my wife's telling me to cut this one off. But, but as, you're, as you're interacting, you're realizing that's what the Holy Spirit's doing in our life all the time. He comes along and he reminds us, you're out of line, you're out of line. You've drifted off. And he doesn't just sit back there and go, oh, no, they're wandering away. Is that what you do with your two-year-old when they don't obey and they go do something? No, I won't go into what we do with them because I'm on video. No, I shouldn't even joke like that because people think the wrong thing. You, you immediately respond. They aren't going to get hurt and they are going to get spanked if it's defiance. 
and they figure it out, they go, well, I bet you they didn't mean it. You ever notice that about two-year-olds? They say that at least a thousand times before they get the point. If they make it to age three. They're testing. That's why consistency, consistency. Well, guess how God works with us? You think he ever forgets or gets tired? Or he goes, oh, man, I've chased after you so many times, I'm not doing it anymore. He sent his own son to die on the cross for us. What more can he say about his love and his commitment and his determination? And so here he says, in wrath, in this time of agitation, as God brings this discipline upon the nation of Judah, he says, remember, call to mind, recall, take thought of us, remember the covenant promises you've given to Judah, and bring her back by showing mercy. This word literally, you look it up in the Hebrew lexicon, it's it's the idea of compassion. It's a loving pity about someone being merciful, but it fits in with the idea of compassion. Deeply moved with kindness. We always talk about the word grace being getting what you don't deserve because the idea of charis is based on a gift or divine favor they'll often put in there. Well, the idea of mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I've seen parents take children's punishment to try to teach them. I don't recommend that. That's not a common thing. But God took our punishment. Jeremiah 31, as I close off, I've got to at least stay under an hour. Or, or what can I say? Jeremiah chapter 31. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. He points this out. And I've left out a lot of stuff. I could have gone a lot longer. I think I'm making my point without having to beat it to death. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will, there's that word, remember no more. It's not that God forgets, because God can't forget. He's all-knowing. There's nothing that's ever happened or going to happen that God can forget. That's not, what, that's not what it means. It means that he did not take it, thought of it. He did not, I'm going back to find my word here. He didn't call it to mind. He didn't bring it up like you do when you get in a fight and your typical targets are like your mother-in-law or, or something that you want to pick on and you bring that up and bam, bam, bam. Take that. God didn't do that. He simply says it with this new covenant of Jeremiah 31. I will forgive their iniquity. It's a permanent pardon. And their sin I will remember no more. Ever again. It's gone. Can you imagine that? A God that knows everything, not bringing it up? It's what he wants us to do with each other. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about, is we have a right relationship with each other. I hate stopping. I had too many good things to bring up here. But the issue is Habakkuk learned a lesson. Very quickly, in a short amount of time, he picked it up. Are we learning the same lessons? Are we going to let God do what he wants to do to perfect the church? Are we going to be standing out on the street corner with our fists in the air screaming at him? Why are you letting them do this to us? We're innocent. We're righteous. We're children of yours. What are you doing? Why are some of my family members being executed? Simply because they love Jesus. Is that how we're going to respond? 
or because of your great faith and your understanding of the scriptures, you are excited that you're going to see them on the other side. You're excited that they're being set free from this life and all the pains and struggles. I've been trying to go for a long time and God won't let me. It's coming 20 years from now. But it, does, it says more about me than it says about ministry. There's things God wants to teach me that he can teach me far better leaving me down here. So as you re- re-enter the atmosphere and all the parts start falling off and you get ready for that sudden crash on the ground of death, we need to be rejoicing. We need to be thanking God because in our weakness, he's made strong. We've got to not follow the world. We've got to turn it right side up to rejoice always and pray without ceasing and everything to give thanks. Count it all joy because of what he's doing. We're preparing for Christ's return. We're not trying to get the most out of life, getting all the gusto we can get or whatever other phrases they want to bring up. Put God first and prove it in your walk. Prayer, scripture, fellowship, evangelism. Let's pray. Father, I left out the one that's probably most important, and it's just worship. It's just to bow before you. As I read Psalm 12 this morning, I, I was amazed at how well, even though it came from David, how well it fit with Habakkuk. You were good. You only do what's good. But because of our sin, there's a lot of suffering that's going to go on, including death. Even all those that were healed by your son eventually died. The only way we get that taken away is through his life. To have these bodies die off and for us to receive new bodies. That again is only bringing out your goodness. So may we stop fighting the suffering and screaming to the top of our lungs. But may we love you and trust you and celebrate each and everything that comes into our lives so that people can see Jesus in us and not get distracted by our selfishness. Thank you for the reminder. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.